Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, not in New York City and not in Secaucus. Gosh, I can't remember the last time I was able to say that I was in somewhere other than New York or Secaucus, but today I'm coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, where I've been celebrating 4th of July and other various holidays with family members that I haven't seen in far too long. Uh, I also had a chance to visit Maryland Live last night, which is a casino here in the Baltimore area. It's actually kind of right between Baltimore and Washington. And I just wanted to take a little break from my vacation and put together a quick episode for you guys. I just really appreciate all of you so much for all the support, all the people that are following me on Twitter at Clayton Comic, everyone who likes and reviews and subscribes to this podcast on all the various platforms. It just means so much. You, you can possibly know how much it means to me and to all of us here at TPE. So thank you guys for making this podcast what it is. Uh, I want to start by talking a little bit about my first trip back to a casino. I went to Maryland Live last night and played in a tournament. I'm going to have a few hands for you guys from that tournament. But first I wanted to kind of give you a feel for what it's like. For those who haven't been back to a casino to play poker at all since before the pandemic. Uh, At Maryland Live, I know it varies from state to state, but there you don't have to wear a mask. There are no partitions separating the players, no plexiglass, and the tables are eight-handed. So uh, the dealers and the floor people, the waitresses, pretty much everyone who works at Maryland Live is wearing a mask at all times, and they're being very careful about COVID protocols and trying to protect themselves from the potential. For me as a player, it was great. I love eight-handed. Can we please just never go back to nine-handed? Eight-handed is so much better. I had so much room. You should never be that close to another human being unless you are either planning to kiss or kill that person. So I think eight-handed is much better. We had elbow room, we had leg room, and I think that's something we should never go back to. No more nine-handed, no more 10-handed, no more 11-handed tables ever. Uh, They don't test you when you arrive at Maryland Live. There's no temperature check. There's no, uh, you know, can you prove that you're vaccinated? Can you show me your papers at the border? Nothing like that is happening. It seems like the staff there is basically assuming that every single person at Maryland Live is carrying the virus. Uh, No one's required to wear a mask. About 30, maybe 25 or 30 percent of the players do wear the mask, but I personally wonder how many of them are just doing so to hide their tells and not really because they're worried about their health. Uh, Anyway, it was good vibes all around, and I was just happy to get back into the tournament groove. I was surprised with how much room I had and with how much fun I had in the process. Okay, well, let's get to this tournament that I played, and I'm going to make this snappy because I've just been informed 
that my Italian uncle has some homemade lasagna waiting for me and I'm ready to go eat it. But like I said, I wanted to give you guys a little something to uh, nibble on during this uh, vacation week that I'm having. And I have two pretty interesting hands to discuss. Now this is a daily tournament. Now they, they mix up the schedule every day, whether it's a bounty event or whatever. But one thing they do that I really like at Maryland Live is they do put guarantees on pretty much every daily tournament that they hold, which is nice because you know kind of roughly what the prize would be for first place and whether it's a dollar amount that you're interested in competing to win. So that is a great thing. I love guarantees. Uh, this one is, you know, it's funny because last week we talked a lot about rake and this tournament has an atrocious and I mean horrible, atrocious rake. So it's a $130 total payment to play in this event. It's got a $15,000 guarantee and $30 of the $130 goes to the house, leaving only $100 from every buy-in to go to the prize pool. So this is a ridiculous rake i mean i i can tell you the play in this tournament a lot of the players in this tournament were pretty bad and i'm still not sure that i would be profitable were i to play in this event every day uh, maybe if they got an overlay once in a while it might be worth it as we discussed last week the effect of the overlay is a reduction of the rake in almost all cases but barring that, I just don't know whether I would be plus EV in any tournament with a 30% rake. That is very hard to overcome. Maybe one of the best players in the world would be slightly profitable in this tournament. I don't know. I mean, even the worst players nowadays have some clue, don't they? I don't know. This was, uh, it, it was a bit of sticker shock when I realized how much they intended to take out for the house profit but at level two of the tournament they only had 46 players registered so i thought there was a good chance that registration would close before they reached that magic fifteen thousand dollar guarantee and boy was i wrong uh, with the re-entries and the other people jumping in late and everything the thing starts at like seven o'clock well by eight o'clock they'd already smashed the guarantee the tournament plays like a deep stack super turbo. So you start with 30,000 in chips and the first blind level is 100, 100 with a 100 big blind ante. And then 15 minutes later, it moves up to 100, 200 with a 200 big blind ante and goes up very aggressively every 15 minutes for the first two hours. And then after the break, you come back to 20-minute super turbo levels that go up very aggressively. So it is designed to end within seven or eight hours, I think. On this particular night, they had 240 entries, which includes re-entries, to be fair. And by 10.30, three and a half hours in, half of the players were gone, and there were only 120 players remaining. So... It was uh, a very fast structure, to say the least. And with 
being eight-handed and super turbo, the chips were flying, believe you me. So I have two hands I wanted to share, and the first one actually comes from the 200, 400, 400 level. So again, you start with 30,000 in chips. Um, I was running like God <laughs> for the first hour or so, and it quickly built my 30,000 all the way up to almost 100. I believe it was 97,000 within the first few levels. Um, you know, I flopped a set with pocket aces and got paid on three streets. I flopped a flush and got paid on three streets. So one thing about these small stakes tournaments in live poker, you can expect to get paid on your good hands way more often than you would in a higher stakes buy-in or perhaps an online event. And the reason why is just, you know, the, the common mistake that's made by the least experienced players is always going to be calling too much. So they limp in early, then you make a big raise with a premium hand or, you know, two big cards, and they'll just call that raise from out of position and then check to you. And then if you hit a piece of the flop, you can just bet it very heavy and expect to get called at least two, if not three times with just one pair and have it be good. Now, obviously in a tournament with tougher competition, you can expect to get check raised a lot. You can expect to get outplayed sometimes. And in these tournaments, they're kind of playing, I guess what you could call a slot machine style, right? So they want to just see what happens. So that is uh, the general player profile. Now within that will be sprinkled a few players that are trying to win something called the tournament leaderboard, which I guess is some kind of free roll. If you play tournaments there every day and you have X number of final tables, you might be at the top of the leaderboard and win some kind of cash prize for that, uh, or a trophy and bragging rights throughout the state of Maryland about how you beat all the really bad players in the tournament, uh, stuff like that. I'm not really sure what that's all about, but I know there is some sort of incentive for people to play lots and lots of tournaments. And if I were raking 30% out of every buy-in, I would also try to incentivize people playing a lot of these. So business is booming at Maryland Live Casino. They got 240 entries in the prize pool was over $20,000 with a first place prize of 5200 bucks, which is not bad for a $130 investment. So here's the first hand that I wanted to talk about. It's 200-400 with a 400 big blind ante. So there is 1,000 in the middle. Our table is sitting seven-handed, and the action folds to Hero Clayton with his 97,000 stack and go ahead and raise it up to 1,000 uh, with the ace of clubs, king of clubs from the cutoff position. So fold it to me in the cutoff with ace king suited. I go ahead and raise. I can go a little bigger here. Uh, a lot of the players at my table have around the starting stack. It's still pretty early in the tournament. I've just been running so so well. I'm just hitting everything and, and winning lots of chips on every pot, it seems. And now here I am with yet another very big hand the old ace king of clubs. So I could raise bigger and expect to get called. I just, I don't know. I, I'd rather just raise small and be able to stand a little pressure if somebody three bets, whatever. This table is really, really loose. Um, I don't expect to ever steal the blinds with this bet. Uh, the small blind in particular is a very flashy guy. He's wearing these like spectacular 
dazzling, glittery sunglasses at the table, and he's got more than one gold chain around his neck, and he seems to be speaking about 75% louder than is necessary to be heard. All of this being an indication that he's the type of fellow who doesn't mind a little bit of attention. So that's the player in the small blind, and he has been playing approximately 100% of the hands. You heard that right. I don't actually think I've seen this player fold yet. Um, so I raise it to 1,000, and the big blind, uh, sorry, the small blind, the player we just talked about, does call, as does the big blind. So I'm going up against the blinds in position with ace of clubs, king of clubs. Now these guys both have about 50,000 in their stack. Uh, the big blind is a more straightforward, kind of conservative, but not skillful player. Um, he's just tight enough to probably cash in this tournament a good bit of the time with all of the loose action around him. Um, he doesn't really have to do too much except for just wait till he has something and then get involved. Um, but yeah, when he calls here, that could mean a lot of things because he's getting a pretty darn good price to do so. So the three of us see the flop and it comes jack of spades, tray of clubs, deuce of clubs. So we now have two over cards and the nut flush draw with, of course, the nebulous possibilities of a straight Broadway or wheel, both certainly in play at this point. So it's a great flop for us and both of our opponents check. Now with 3,000 in the pot, should we bet or should we check behind? Well, against tougher opponents, I don't mind checking some of the time here. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's certainly possible that you can deceive more talented thinking opponents into believing that you can't possibly have the flush because, of course, you would have semi-bluffed on the flop. I'm, I'm talking about if the flush comes later, it's harder for good opponents to put you on that flush when you check behind on the flop with two of the flush cards out there. Uh, that is certainly one reason to check back against tougher competition. Also, just the fear of getting check raised, knowing that you're going to have to uh, continue to give action with such a big draw, uh, and maybe just wanting to preserve your stacks, things like that. It's certainly okay to check it back when you're up against that type of opponent. But against these opponents, I think checking is no good. I mean, even if we happen to be behind at the moment, we have so much equity versus their ranges. And it becomes very important for us to try to build a pot for if we happen to hit an ace or a king or a club on the turn, which would almost certainly be good and most importantly, be able to get paid. So we want to build the pot now so that we can make bigger bets later if and when we get there. There is very little chance that our flop bet will ever take it down on this board. <laughs> so uh, they, get that thought out of your head for sure. So again, with 3,000 in the, in the middle and about 50,000 effective, I went ahead and fired relatively big. I bet 2,200 into 3,000 and only our flashy friend in small blind called. Now, what does this call mean? It actually means nothing. He could easily have ace queen of hearts here. Um, he might have a pair, he might not. 
he could have just one club and hoping for two more clubs to come, not knowing how much trouble he'd actually be in were that to happen. Um, he might just have a jack. He could have a small pair. He could have a tray or a deuce. Remember the board is jack, tray, deuce with the tray, deuce of clubs and the jack of spades. He could have any two spades and wanted to get two more spades to try to make a flush himself. So his call, even of a large bet, does not mean much based on what I've seen in approximately one hour of playing against him. So with that in mind, we're not too unhappy to get called. The turn is the five of spades. So now there are two spades and two clubs, jack, tray, deuce, five. We still have just ace of clubs, king of clubs for ace, king, high. But now we did pick up a gut shot. So uh, on this card, our opponent decides to check. And now with 7,400 in the middle, we have a decision about whether to bet our ace high again, having been called on the flop. I can actually go either way here. I do feel that betting on the come is more effective, generally speaking, on the flop than it is on the turn. But with a draw as strong as the one that we have now, I actually don't mind if you want to fire again. You will occasionally get some kind of fold, especially if you bet a large amount again and your opponent has next to nothing. Then you will get those folds in those in instances. However, under these circumstances, I decided to check behind because I haven't made that much money in my career bluffing players such as this one. So I just decided to check behind and hope to finally make a hand on the river. And the river comes the Ace of Hearts for a final board of Jack, Trey, Deuce, Five, Ace with two clubs and two spades. So a lot of draws have missed, including the one that we have, but we do have a pair of aces with a king kicker, so top, top, as Jamie Gold would say. So we're sitting here with top, top, and our opponent checks again. So do we have a value bet? Well, look, against a really talented opponent or somebody that's super tricky, I do not think you should bet your pair of aces, just check behind and see if you win the pretty nice pot considering the hand strength that you have. Uh, but against this player, I think that we can get called by any tray, any jack, any deuce, any five. Um, I think that we can get called by worse ace X for sure. And there just isn't that much for us to worry about because the only draws that didn't miss are hands that had a four. So I don't know how many fours he actually has in his range. It's a non-zero number for sure, but I think we can fade the possibility that we're about to get check raised <laughs> and just go ahead and try to get a little value for the pair of aces. I think you want to bet small here. I think that we should not try to get a lot of value, but just try to get that curious crying call. So what I did is into 7,400, I bet 2,200, which was the same amount that I bet on the flop. And I thought that it might be irresistible, especially when he has a jack, but possibly with a worse pair as well. And rather quickly, our opponent check raised to 8,500. 
And this is actually one of the easiest folds I've ever made. So when I first said that, if you said, well, he could be bluffing with a missed draw, you don't know the opponent that I'm talking about. Uh, the check raise bluff in general is pretty rare among players who are not students of the game. And this guy does not seem to be one. So I, I'm not too worried about getting outplayed and check raise bluffed here by this particular opponent. So I think it's pretty easy. Go ahead and make the, make the exploitative fold because you just know that it's just not going to be a bluff often enough to make calling profitable. So uh, I gave him a look and I said, oh man, you really got a four. And he smirked a little bit and I just felt like he was pretty confident. And I folded and I made, perhaps because I spoke to him and gave him some attention that he so strongly desires, uh, he did flip over his cards. And sure enough, well, he showed me one card and it was the four of hearts. So although it's not much fun having such a big draw on the flop and losing to a hand with a four in it, at least we did not pay off on the end. Okay, so a while later, we get moved to another table, and this table was a bit tougher. A lot of the players seemed to know each other and seemed to know all the dealers, and I thought this I had gotten moved to kind of like whatever the uh, live poker version of a, of a reg table would be. Now, when you're playing online poker against a bunch of regs, you know, they're regs because they make a lot of money, or at least they make some money, or at least they break even, enough to keep their hobby going. That's what we typically mean when we say reg or when we're talking about online. But in a small stakes, $130 on a live event at a locals casino without too many visitors, uh, the regs are going to be considerably worse than what a reg online would be. And the reason for that is because it's just people that they, they tend to go to work all day and maybe after work, they go and play in the tournament at the casino, have a couple of drinks, and they get to know each other. It's a more of a social thing for them. And believe me, I, I don't mean to sound disparaging about this. I, I have no problem with this. I think poker should be fun, and I think we should all play partly for the social aspect. It makes the game better. But I'm just trying to make a differentiation between when I talk about a reg in an ACR event that cost me $109 to buy into, and this relatively comparable price point of $130, the quality of the regs in this event is going to be much, much lower. So some of them are kind of eyeing me up. I don't know if it's because maybe they secretly knew who I am. Um, more likely they don't know who I am, but they know that I seem to know what I'm doing a little bit and they don't like that from people that they don't recognize. Because again, I hardly ever visit this casino only really when I'm visiting my family. So I'm getting a little bit of unwanted attention from these regs. I'm just trying to be as friendly as possible and to appear as unthreatening as I can. I don't want to break up your little party. I know that you guys meet up every Wednesday for this tournament, and I'm sorry that I crashed your party and that I have a lot of chips. The average stack at this point was 48,000, and our stack was at 120. So we were doing quite well, and there were about 100 players remaining with 28, I believe, getting paid. At this point, the blinds were 600, 1200 with a 1200 big blind ante at an eight-handed 
spacious and comfortably cozy table, uh, the action folds to me in third position, holding two red kings, pocket kings. And of course, we're going to raise. I decide to make it 3,000. Uh, we can debate the merits of making it smaller or bigger, but it really doesn't matter very much. Uh, I'm at a, a table of live regs, mostly. Um, maybe one player that seems a little out of place, and she's just folding everything. Like She hasn't played a hand yet, and I've been here for about 15 minutes, a.k.a. one level. <laughs> it's a turbo, remember? 15 or 20 minutes at this point. So, yeah, we make it 3,000, and only the big blind calls. So, let's talk about him. He is one of the players who is masked up, and I don't think it's for health reasons. Uh, he strikes me as one of the few competent players in the tournament. He seems a little bit more serious than everyone else. Maybe a little bit of an attitude, like the whole thing is a bit beneath him, but he's here anyway, because what else am I going to do on a Wednesday night? You know, that kind of vibe. We all know the type. I bet if you ever asked him, uh, if you said, if you made a comment with this player at your table, something like, wow, I wonder what time this tournament ends anyway, you would get an answer something like, well, last week it didn't end until 1.30 in the morning. Something like that. Um, you know, a lot of players will try to find subtle ways to let you know they've actually won the thing before and they knew exactly what time it ended. And that's something that they are looking for excuses to mention. So if you ever open up that <laughs> particular door, I promise you a player like this one would gladly walk right through it. So that's the vibe on him. Uh, he's a bit of a tough guy. Um, he's not a jerk or anything. He's just, you know, I, I get this vibe from him. And, you know, part of my job as a comedian is to figure people out in this way to get a general sense of their personalities without very much information other than how they carry themselves and what they look like because I don't really get to have much of a conversation with the audience, obviously. And I, I try to apply the same skill to poker and then adjust my play accordingly. So he calls from the big blind and he's got about, I would say 60-ish in his stack. So now we're going to see a flop, heads up, in position, holding pocket kings. And the flop comes eight of clubs, six of hearts, four of clubs. So eight, six, four with two clubs. So our opponent checks and with 6,600 in the middle, we have a decision whether to bet pocket kings on eight, six, four. Again, we don't have any clubs. It's eight, six, four with two clubs. Now I would say that versus 99% of the players who enter this tournament, you should always bet on a flop like this when you have the overpair. There's just too much value in going for value and not that much value in going for deception. You will get action from any piece of the board as well as any type of gut shot, hands like A7. Uh, even if they don't have a club, they're likely to call at least one bet, if not two, trying to get there and hit whatever hand they're trying to make. And the value of checking is mostly for deception purposes and with a little bit of pot control for the rare occasion when you might be beat. If we check back versus this player, we will often inspire him to try to bluff us on the turn and possibly even the river. 
especially if a scare card hits, and that's uh, a good reason to do that. However, I still think that on balance, you're better off betting and betting and betting. So the long story short is that when you are in a small stakes tournament and you have a very good or good hand, you should mostly bet it, and slow playing is just not that effective in tournaments like this one. You're going to get called, guys. Don't be afraid of losing the fish that's on your line. Bet and let him call. Okay, so that's what we do here. We decide to go ahead and fire 4,000 into the 6,600 pot, and our opponent cuts out some raising chips, but then ultimately decides to call. Okay, so live tell time. What does this mean? Well, it could mean a flush draw. It could mean that he's trying to deceive us into putting him on a bigger hand than the one he has. There are a lot of reasons why he might have made that little move where he looked like he was going to raise and then chose not to. But he made such a show of it that I thought it was just that, a show. In other words, I don't believe that this opponent actually considered check raising in the moment. I could be wrong, but that was the read I had at the time. And so that's what I'm sharing with you now. So he just calls and we're going to see a turn. With 14,600 in the middle, the turn pairs the board. It's the six of hearts. So eight, six, four, and now another six. Our opponent checks again. And this time I decide to check behind. There is some chance that our opponent has a very weak hand, something like ace seven, um, maybe a draw with a hand like nine seven, certainly could have uh, just a, a bear eight or a four, but there's also some chance that we just got outdrawn with the six here. So if he had a hand like six five or seven six or nine six, uh, he just made trips against us and would probably be pretty happy to check raise if we bet. Now against an opponent like this one, we have to worry about the check raise, not only because he will do it when we're beat, but sometimes he will do it when we are not beat. And that can be a very dicey situation when you have two kings. So you do have to be more cautious against thinking opponents who have some idea how to play the game. And this guy does seem to be that type. So I don't want him to try to prove himself against me and show me who's boss or anything like that. I feel like controlling this pot now and just checking back on the turn is the play. So we do not bet. And now with 14,600 still in the middle, we see a river and it's the deuce of clubs completing the flush for a final board of eight, six, four, six, deuce with three clubs, hero holding pocket kings. And immediately our opponent puts out 10,000 on this river. So he bets 10,000 into 14.6, which is a pretty healthy bet in that two-thirds pot range, 64% to be exact, I think. Um, but yeah, it's about two-thirds of the pot. And we are now facing a fairly difficult decision whether we should call or fold with two kings. Uh, against the player from the other hand, the flashy guy, 
that Czech raised us on the river when he showed us a four, um, I think it's a pretty easy fold because he wouldn't have had the chops to bluff that scare card on the river. So I wouldn't worry about getting outplayed by him. I would assume that he had me and go ahead and fold rather cheerfully. But against this player, there was something going on. Uh, think about if you made a flush on that river. Would you quickly grab two 5,000 chips and throw them forcefully into the middle of the pot? Or would you try to pretend that you didn't like the river and that you just didn't know what you should do and that maybe you're just going to pretend that you're bluffing and all of that stuff. So there's something that felt very inauthentic about the way my opponent immediately fired so big on that card. Now, the problem I have here is I'm trying to figure out if he's got a bluff, what bluffs does he have? Well, he can actually have more than you might originally think because, again, we did not bet the turn. So we keep more hands that might have folded to a turn bet in on the river because we didn't give them a chance to fold on the turn. It could be that our opponent made a flush and then quickly grabbed two 5,000 chips and threw them forcefully and suddenly in the middle. Or it could be that he has a hopeless hand that didn't get there and doesn't think it's good enough to win a showdown. So he's trying to represent that flush. He's talented enough in the sense that he's capable of having a plan like this. Like I'm either going to hit my hand or I'm going to represent that flush if it comes in. He's capable of doing that. That's the good news for our kings. But he's also offering us a pretty lousy price, which is bad news for our pair of kings. So what to do if I don't catch a bluff here with my kings, then what hands are in my range for playing this way that I would use as bluff catchers? I mean, that leaves what? Just aces? Um, I mean, I'm not going to put worse pairs in, right? So when will I catch bluffs? When I have a club? Like only if I have kings, but I have a club blocking some of the flushes that our opponent could have? I mean, it all seems dicey to me. And when you realize that your opponent is capable of making a certain kind of bluff, you need to have some hands that you will use to catch that bluff. And so for me, if I'm not going to call with kings, which are actually pretty close to the top of my range. Remember, guys, I raised from early middle position, so I'm not going to have a lot of like 5-7 or 5 tray kind of straights in my in my range here so most of my range is going to be bigger hands bigger pairs hands like pocket kings i probably would not bluff catch with ace king just because villain will occasionally have just an eight in his hand so i thought about it for a little while i mean it's a turbo so i'm not going to spend all night trying to figure out what's going on here but maybe 20 seconds which is a pretty long time I decided to call, and he said the magic words, you're good. I love when they say you're good, but I didn't turn my hand over yet. I don't like your good. Your good could mean he thinks I'm good, and then he ends up having pocket aces or something like that. So I don't move. I wait patiently for my opponent to turn his hand over, which he fails to do. He throws it into the muck, and we scoop the pot. Now, I don't know what the rules are at Maryland Live,
but I turned my hand over because in the old days, there was a rule in tournament poker to prevent collusion that the winning hand must be exposed when the other hand is mucked. So I don't know if that rule is, is in existence right now, but I don't mind showing that I called you with two kings anyway. I think most players at the table would not be throwing away pocket kings at any point in this tournament, especially not uh, just because the club came on the end. So we won a nice pot on this one and actually took the chip lead, which we held for just a little while. But, you know, like I said, it's a turbo. The blinds get really big, really fast, and we lost a couple coin flips and actually ended up bubbling the thing. So <laughs> uh, welcome back to Live Poker Clayton. So, yeah, I took the bubble, which, uh, you know, if you're going to bubble a tournament, uh, $130 live buy-in is uh, probably the one that you want to bubble. And I'm not mad at it. I had a great time, and it was just nice to be back in my natural habitat, which is a live poker room inside an honest-to-goodness brick-and-mortar casino. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please follow me on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. Check out our website, tournamentpokeredge.com, where, for as little as $25 a month, you can get access to over 1,000 videos on how to improve your game from some of the greatest minds in the poker business. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.
can't read her mind, broken face. She's got to love nobody. Can't read my, can't read my, no, she can't read her mind, broken face. She's got to love nobody.